all things. So, Father, grant us understanding and obedience as we open your word now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, good morning to all of you, and thank you for joining us this morning at Cloverleaf Baptist. It's, it's really an honor to have you with us. And uh, we're continuing on in the Gospel of Luke. Luke chapter 16 is where we will be today, so if you find, yourself, find your place in your Bibles, Luke chapter 16. Luke chapter 16. It's easy to go through life and learn the wrong lessons from time to time. Every so often, a, you know, a student will get caught cheating and the, you know, get confronted, get a zero on the test, and someone will ask you, to, so what are you going to learn from this? And sometimes if the student is snarky, just don't get caught next time, right? Just don't get caught. You get pulled over. You're like, what are you going to learn from this? Well, just make sure I pay better attention to where the police hide out on the side of Dawes Road so I don't get, get, a, get a speeding ticket. Sometimes when we read the Bible, we can draw the wrong lessons from what is being taught, right? If we're not paying careful attention, if we're not understanding the, uh, the, the intention of the author, of the speaker, we can draw lessons from a text, from a passage that aren't actually being taught. And today's text is a passage that, uh, if you're not paying attention, you could draw the wrong lesson. Uh, as we come into Luke chapter 16, this entire chapter is about wealth. It is about how we use money, how we think about money. And boy, man, we're living in an affluent society, in a wealthy society. How we think about money, that's a, they're, they're, that's a big deal. It consumes so much of our time, so much of our energy, and we go to financial advisors and look at, look at our bank statements and, and you know, pay bills and check out at retirement and see how our investments are doing and jump onto Robinhood and see if we can grab something when the stock is low, right? Like we, we think a lot about money, and we go to work so we can get it, and then we go to the store so we can spend it and you know, give some of it to the IRS just out of the generosity and kindness of our hearts. But hey, money's a big part of our lives, right? It expresses so much of our values, and so many of the things that matter to us are encapsulated in, in money and how we, how we use it. So let's read our text here, and I think you'll see pretty quickly how this could be misused. And by the way, it's my understanding that at Brian's Sunday school class, you guys already got this. So if you were in Brian's class, you're, you're free to leave. No, I'm just kidding. Please stay. Um, I, I think Brian and I, we talked before Sunday school, like we were on the same page, so um, if I have some erroneous interpretations, you can come let me know. So Luke chapter 16, beginning in verse 1, follow along as we read the word of God. And he said also unto his disciples, there was a certain rich man which had a steward, and the same was accused unto him that he had wasted his goods. And he called him and said unto him, how is it that I hear this of thee? Give an account of thy stewardship, for thou mayest be no longer... Steward. Then the steward said within himself, What shall I do? For my Lord taketh away from me the stewardship. I cannot dig. To beg, I, I am ashamed. I am resolved what to do. That when I am put out of the stewardship, they may receive me into their houses. So he called every one of his Lord's debtors unto him and said unto the first, How much owest thou unto my, unto my Lord? And he said, A hundred measures of oil. And he said unto him, Take thy bill and sit down quickly and write fifty. Then he said to another, And how much owest thou? And he said, An hundred measures of wheat. And he said unto him, Take thy bill and write fourscore, that is eighty. And the Lord commended, praised the, the unjust, the dishonest steward, because he had done wisely. For the children of this world are in their generation wiser than the children of light. And I say unto you, Make to yourselves friends of the mammon of unrighteousness, that when ye fail, 
ye may, they may receive you into everlasting habitations. He that is faithful in that which is least is faithful also in much, and he that is unjust in the least is unjust also in much. If therefore ye have not been faithful in the unrighteous mammon, who will commit to your trust the true riches? And if ye have not been faithful in that which is another man's, who shall give you that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will hold to the one and despise the other. Ye cannot serve God and mammon. Did you read this, you could draw the wrong lesson. Look, there's this, the steward, he's super dishonest, rips his master off, gets praised by the master. Maybe Jesus is teaching us, hey, it's okay to like rip the boss off, to steal as long as it's for a good cause. Like, no, that's not the lesson that Jesus is teaching us. Just up front, he's not saying it's okay to rip your, your boss off, so just push that to the side. Jesus is telling us about true wealth, about genuine riches. He's telling us how we can be wealthy. Now, in a broader sense, some people have read the Bible and have drawn the wrong lessons. They come along, read the Bible, and they're like, man, there's a lot in here about wealth and God's blessing. And So obviously, God wants us to be wealthy, and God wants us to have lots of stuff, and he wants us to be, lot, be successful. And of course, you can pull verses from here and there throughout the Bible and, and, and put that message together and, and, and decide, you know, the point of the Bible is how we can sort of just, you know, live our best life now and just have it all right now and have a good life and, and have blessing and wealth and favor and it'll be great and we get promotions and more money and, and all of these things. Some people will, try, will suggest that by applying biblical principles when it comes to managing money and by living in faith, we can sort of push beyond the normal limits of life, and God will help you climb the ladder of success. But what if, just what if for a minute, maybe you're thinking that this morning, what if your ladder is leaning against the wrong wall? What if you're using the wrong dictionary to define wealth and success? What if God's definition of success and wealth are different than ours? What if we're learning lessons that aren't being taught and hearing things that aren't being said? Popularly, this teaching that you know, God wants you to be healthy and wealthy is called the prosperity gospel. And I think most of us in the room will recognize, yeah, that doesn't really seem to line up with the Bible, right? Like taking up your cross and suffering for Jesus. It doesn't line up with just sort of experience. When you look at Christianity around the world, hey, let's just be honest, most places in the world, those who claim the name of Jesus don't have it very good. So unless we're just looking at a real narrow lens at our lives, it doesn't really work but here's the danger, beloved. We, we can rightly reject sort of the hard prosperity gospel of the Joel Osteens and the Kevin Copelands and the people on TBN who are flying around in private jets while also embracing a soft prosperity gospel. Here's what I mean by that. This belief that, okay, yeah, well, God doesn't promise health and wealth. If I do things his way, then, then it will go well with me, right? Like, man, if I follow Proverbs and, and do these things... I'll be rich, and God, God will bless me, and I'll do well in my job. Not quite a hard prosperity gospel, but a soft prosperity gospel. This can, be, can go this way. Man, I'm going to follow these principles in raising my kids, and if I do all the right things, then my kids will turn out. Hey, it is generally true. You train up a child in the way he should go. When he's old, he won't depart from it. But that's not an absolute ironclad guarantee, right? Sometimes we can buy into a, a, a soft prosperity gospel. that says, well, if you follow all these principles and you do the right method, then pff, everything will sort of turn out right. Or if you, you know, sort of follow some basic financial advice in Scripture, you'll be successful and you won't, you won't have financial difficulty. 
I've even heard people say, man, if we just sort of follow these, these diets that are in the Bible, you, you'll, you'll be healthier if you, you, know, you follow these kosher diets or, or whatever. The Bible does not make those promises to us, a form of soft prosperity gospel. Luke chapter 16 calls us to redefine our understanding of wealth and success. Jesus tells us how to be truly rich, and richness for Jesus is not about having a bunch of money right here and right now. It's about eternal rewards. It's not about getting, but it is about giving. It's interesting, as you read Luke's gospel, you might say, haven't we heard some messages already about greed and covetousness? Like, why are we doing this again? I'm not preaching this message because I'm like, man, offerings are really low. We need to get... That's not at all the motivation. We're going through Luke's gospel. This is the next thing that Jesus talks about. And Luke is almost like the apostle to the wealthy. He's writing to Theophilus, who's a well-off Roman citizen, and he recognizes that one of the hindrances, one of the obstacles for people coming to Jesus is trusting in wealth, is loving money more than they love Jesus. Becoming a Christian means signing up to follow an unpopular Messiah. And so over and over again in Luke's gospel, he will point out and record Jesus' message regarding money and the dangers of greed and the danger that wealth can pose if we begin to trust in it and rely on it and treasure it too much. So Luke 16 falls into that larger, that larger segment of teaching. We're going to get in coming chapters the rich young ruler explicitly trusting in wealth and walks away sorrowful from Jesus. Then we'll get in Luke 19, a rich guy who does come to faith. Who's that? Zacchaeus. All this ill-gotten gain, he gives it all away. He comes to faith and repentance. It's a glorious story. But this comes up again and again in Luke's gospel. So just a reminder where we're at. Back in Luke 14, Jesus had talked about genuine hospitality. And he said, guys, don't invite people over to your house just so they invite you back again. This is not about, you know, I'm going to give money so that I can get money. It's not just, well, I'll be generous because then God will bless me and I can really get what I want. Uh, So he deals with that in Luke 14. You give and you're generous because you trust God to reward you in eternity, not so you can get some kickback here and now. Then in Luke 15, he had talked about the the publicans, the sinners drawing near, the, the people repenting, coming from brokenness and receiving and welcoming them. It's not a mistake that Luke 16 then comes along and says, let's use our resources and our wealth to see that that happens. Use our resources and our wealth to show that hospitality to those who are outside the kingdom, to show that welcoming and ensure that those who don't know Jesus are brought to Jesus so that they will welcome us into eternal dwellings. Okay, long introduction. Let's dive in. Here's where we're going to go this morning. We're going to just go through this text, and we're going to get three paradoxical principles about money. Now, I say they're paradoxical because they're sort of counterintuitive. We think, hey, the way to manage money is, you know, be really smart about it and make sure you, you, you get a good job and you make lots of money and you save it and you invest and you budget. That's all good and well. That's wise, right? That's common sense. That's using your God-given common sense. But Jesus is calling to us to, us to something far more radical. So the first paradoxical principle I'm going to call this the investment principle. And just so you know, this is going to be about two-thirds of the message because it's going to take up about two-thirds of the text. We're going to just break down this parable. We'll take some time on that and then circle back around. We really will circle back around and come to the, uh, how this applies to us. So this first principle is the investment principle. We understand how investment works, right? It's time plus interest equals wealth in the long run. And time is kind of the biggest factor there. We get this parable about this guy who robs from his master, and then he thinks about his future. Uh Uh-oh, I'm getting fired. I need to think about my my future. And Jesus says, here's an illustration of a lost guy who is thinking about his future. Christians, you need to think about your eternal future. As you invest, think about not just retirement, but eternity. So let's dive into the parable. 
These opening verses, we just notice in verse 1, Jesus is now addressing the disciples. Previous chapter, he had been speaking to the Pharisees. Pharisees are still within earshot. In verse 14, they're going to come back around and really poo-poo what Jesus has just said because they love their money, right? They're not big into this whole generosity thing. As the chapter opens, Jesus moves into this parable. There's a certain rich man. Everything we've sort of gotten in Luke's gospel makes us think, hey, rich guy, he's probably cruel, probably wicked, uh, based on what we have seen earlier. He's got a steward. Now, steward is more than just kind of a butler, the guy who answers the door, but he's the business manager. He's the one who runs the estate, who runs the farm, who takes care of the wealth, takes care of the business account, who basically stands as the agent or the representative of the master. So think of him as a, as, as a, as a manager. Think of him even as a CEO for the corporation. doesn't technically own it, but he's the guy who's running it. So he's got this manager, this master. This rich man has this manager who's been squandering his goods. By the way, that word wasted in verse 1 uh, was used in the previous chapter about the, the prodigal son wasting the, the father's wealth. So here's a guy, he's wasting his master's wealth. Maybe he's been doing fraudulent activity. Maybe he's just been lazy and incompetent. But either way, all this wealth has been wasted by this guy's mismanagement or even his, uh, his fraud. The master calls him in verse 2 and is like, all right, I've heard that you're squandering the money. You're fired. Make sure you get the accounts in order. Hand the account book, the checkbook back over to me. You're done. So basically, he gets a uh, hand in the account, turn in the keys, clean out your desk. You are fired come Monday. He gets his pink slip in verse 2. You can no longer be steward. However, the, the master makes a little bit of a mistake. He gives this guy a little bit of time to sort of sort out the books. And sort out the books, does he ever? Uh, his plan in verse 3, the steward said within himself, in Luke's gospel, whenever we get people having conversations with themselves, it's never good. Right? It's always sinful. It's always ex- expressing the evil of their hearts, which that's probably a good reminder for us. Uh, follow your heart's really bad advice. Following your heart will lead you to some really horrible places. So the steward speaks within himself, what shall I do? For my Lord takes away the stewardship. I'm losing my job. And then he says, okay, here's my options. I can't dig. I'm not strong, literally, I'm not strong enough to dig. And to beg, I'm ashamed. Now, what's going on there with the digging? He's like, okay, if I get fired from this and everybody knows that I'm a complete fraud and an incompetent manager, in other words, if you get fired for embezzling money at work, the local bank is not going to hire you. Right? Any other sort of white-collar desk job, they're like, nope, you're not hired here. You need to go out and start digging ditches. And this guy's, like, this guy's looking at this. He's had a great, cushy job for years and years, and he's like, man, these hands, um, the, these, are, these, these are, you know, desk job hands. These are not use-a-shovel kind of hands. I, I'm not strong enough to dig. I sort of was joking yesterday. Uh, Aaron and I were working on, on fixing the gate, and I was saying, man, if pastoring does not work out for me, Hanging gates is definitely not in my future. That's not something that I'm good at, right? Like, I, that's not in my, in my skill set. That's what this guy is saying is, okay, I can do stewardship, but, man, digging, manual labor, I'm not able to do that. And he says, and to beg, I'm ashamed. I'm not going to go back to the people who used to be sort of the creditors, used to be the debtors, used to be the business people that we did things with, and go beg. Uh, there's a proverb in the book of Ecclesiasticus, uh, not Ecclesiastes, Ecclesiasticus is a extra-biblical book of sort of Jewish writings that says, it is better to die than to beg. Right? This guy's saying, like, I've got too much pride to go out and, and sort of panhandle on the side of the road or go door-to-door asking for people's help. So manual labor, not doing that. Begging, not doing that. I need something else. And so then verse 4, 
I'm resolved what to do. We kind of miss a little bit of the sense of the, um, the spark of genius. There's, suddenly it comes to him. There's a eureka moment where he's like, aha, I have an idea. It's like the Grinch where he comes up with his very, whatever the word is, the Dr. Seuss, where he comes up with his plan to go steal Christmas. That's what this guy's going to go do. Except he's not going to steal Christmas. He's going to go rob his master. Um, so in a moment of sort of inspired creativity, he comes up with a scheme to simultaneously rob his master and ensure his own livelihood. He's like, okay, I'm going to be out of a job soon. I need to make sure that I have a roof over my head and some food on the table. What am I going to do? And he comes up with this plan. Um, and in, in it's, a, it's a sort of a criminal genius kind of plan. Now, notice his goal, verse 4. This language is important because Jesus picks up on it in verse 9. He says that when I'm put out of the stewardship, okay, when I'm fired, they may receive me into their houses. Here's what's going on here. We mentioned this a few weeks ago, that the whole ancient world was built on the system of patronage. Uh, it's not just a, hey, someone did a favor to me. I might do something nice for them and down the road. That's kind of how we do things. But there was almost, there, it, was, it was almost a formal uh, system that if someone did something for you, you were now obligated to them. There was obligation attached to this. So if someone gives you a gift, there are always strings attached in the ancient world, Right? So if he does a good turn to the debtors, which he's going to go and erase a bunch of their debt, they are now socially obligated to him. Not just a suggestion, but society would expect them to welcome him into their home. That's an important sort of cultural backdrop here. So he wants to get these former creditors to welcome him in. Doing these debtors a good turn in their eyes ensured reciprocal treatment from them. So when he gets sacked, he's always going to have a bed to sleep in and a table to eat at whenever he stopped by one of their houses. So let's see what he does. Uh, we come along to verse 5. So he called every one of his Lord's debtors. So apparently the, the master for whom this manager works owns a lot of land, and he's got a lot of people who are renting from him and a lot of people who are maybe farming the land for him. He's got a lot of people who are indebted to him. He is a, he is a creditor. He is someone who is, who, who is making these loans. And so the, the language here in verse 5 is he calls them one by one. He does, has these conversations in private uh, to sort of ensure secrecy, and he tells them to act quickly because this is, he's turning them into a bunch of accomplices uh, to his crime. So he calls them in one by one, and he said to the first, and we get the, idea, we get the sense in verses 5 and 6, that we're just given an example. Maybe there's dozens of these individuals, but we get the idea of what he says to them. Hey, take the, you know, take the promissory note, take the, uh, take the mortgage payment, and we're just going to change the amount that you owe. Like that, That's what he's doing. Like, how on earth is that legal? Remember, as the steward, he is legally the representative of his master. So whatever he does in his master's name is as, is as if the master himself did it. So legally, what he does is binding. He's still the steward. He's technically not been fired yet. He can go back and say, hey, you owed $100,000. It's now $50,000. Just change the amount that is owed. Now, some, some commentators are like, well, maybe he's just knocking the interest off. Maybe he's taking his own commission off. But notice what he says in verse 5. How much do you owe my Lord? Like the money was owed to the master, not to the, not to the steward, not to the manager. So he is, he is, he is ripping off. He is essentially stealing from his master to carry out the scheme. It's devious, it's wicked, it's greedy, right? Like, very obvious what he is doing here. So the guy in verse 6 says, I owe 100 measures of oil. And yeah, we're not talking WD-40 or crude oil. We're talking olive oil, 100 measures. Okay, that doesn't really do much for me. I'm like, 100 measures, like, I don't know what that is. Did a little bit of research. Um, 
100 jugs of olive oil, we're talking 875 gallons of olive oil. Um, right, that's a lot of olive oil. That's worth about, 100, or, or, worth about 1,000 denarii. That's three years' wages. Not just three years' living expense. So think about sort of how much you make on average a year. You're like, hey, 40,000, three years' worth, four threes, $120,000 that is owed. That's a lot of money, right? For any of us, that would be, yeah, that's going to take me a long time. Most people take 30 years on their mortgage to pay back that, that kind of money. And he's like, hey, just take it and, uh, well, let's see, let's just write 50 instead of 100. Just literally cut that in half. Just robbed his master of $60,000. Just boom, like that. Now, if you're the debtor, you're like, sure, I'm, I'm down for this. If I don't have to pay the money back, I won't pay the money back. He has now obligated that debtor to him, right? He just did a really awesome thing for that guy of lowering his bill massively. What he's probably also done is ensured immediate payment for the, the, the rest. Hey, I'll just go ahead and pay off the balance. No longer in debt. Half of it's been forgiven. I just paid off the rest of it. Uh, so the master is going to get short-term payment. The manager is going to get everybody to like him. And the debtors don't have to owe, any, owe, owe money anymore. Everybody's happy um, until they sort of until the master sort of figures this out. The next guy, verse 7, he asks the other, how much do you owe? He says, I owe 100 measures of wheat. And he says, take the bill and write 80, write four score. Uh, okay, how much is that? How much is 100, measure, or, um, 100 measures of wheat? We're dealing with the equivalent of nine or ten years w- uh, worth of wages. All right, so figure out how much you would make over the next decade and say you owe someone that much money. And someone comes along and is like, hey, I got a deal. Immediate 20% reduction in the principal. Hey, you take that deal, right? Like, hey, that sounds like a pretty good settlement. That's going to save me big time. Now, here's sort of the surprise twist, because here's what you would expect at this point in the story. This guy has squandered the money. Then he's come back along and robbed the master. Like, he's a real scoundrel, right? This guy is not, not a good guy at all. What we would expect is the master to catch wind of it and then to have this guy, you know, like, hey, have him stoned, have him murdered, have him cut in pieces. He's a thief and a robber, and so will God judge all those who are greedy. You'd think that's the story. Jesus, I think, almost with a glint in his eye and a bit of a smirk on his face, gives this surprise ending, and people sort of gasp in horror or even even laugh in surprise at sort of this punchline. And the Lord praised the dishonest manager. He commended the unjust steward. Now, the Lord here is not a reference to God. Throughout the story, the term the Lord, the Lord is referring to, and it's lowercase l, which helps us. We're talking about the master in the story. So the character in Jesus' story is sort of floored and flabbergasted by this guy's gall and by his brilliance in this little plan that he came up with. It's important to notice that Jesus is not praising him, right? You could kind of go learn a wrong lesson. If you're like, oh, Jesus is praising people for being dishonest. No, the, the, the manager or, or the master in the story is praising him not for being unjust, and that word unjust sort of has the, 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 the connotation here of dishonest. He's not praising his dishonesty. Why is he praising him? Because he had done wisely. Um, now, wise sounds sort of like a good thing. Maybe a good word here is shrewd. If someone tells you, man, you are really shrewd and cunning, probably not a positive thing, but a recognition that you are using your gifts of intellectual ability and smarts uh, in a really devious kind of way. So this is sort of like a, you know, the police sort of, they, they catch the criminal, they arrest the guy, and they're just sort of like, all right, you're going to prison, but we really kind of are impressed with you know, how you escaped from Alcatraz. That's kind of the idea here, right? Like, man, that was, that was clever. We are impressed with your cleverness. 
doesn't change the fact that what you did is wrong. That's, that's where the, the, the master is. He's praising him for being, behaving shrewdly. So what has the, the manager, the steward, done? He has ensured that his future is taken care of. He's taken all of his smarts to ensure that his future is taken care of. Now, the middle of verse 8, the story ends and the commentary begins. Four. Now, Jesus is going to give us his commentary. Here's the point. The children of this world, of this age, of this present time, are in their generation wiser, shrewder, there's that word again, than the children of light. Here's what he's saying. The children of this age, the people who are the here and now time-bound, those who are lost, uh, the Hebrews divided sort of history into two ages, the present age and the age to come. And the coming of Jesus means that the two overlap, like the, the, the future age has come now. We can, have, we can have a relationship with God now. So the children of this age, the lost, hey, they're, they're often smarter in preparing for their future than the saved are. And that's, that's the point of this story. The point of this story. Smarter. More focused on the future. More, taking more concern for the future. Now he's saying, you know, a key phrase here, they are wiser in their generation, in regards to the things of here and now. So here's what he's saying. The children of this age, the lost, they plan for their future, right? They make sure that they've got a retirement fund and a 401k and all these things. They're smart about that. But he's like, but the children of light, Christians, you're not thinking about your eternal future, right? Saying they're concerned about their earthly future. You need to be concerned about your eternal future, it's just as they're smart about making sure, hey, I've got a roof over my head and food on the table and retirement taken care of. And by the way, that's a smart thing to do, to think about retirement. He says, Christians, you need to think about your eternity, right? Like, you know where you're going to spend eternity. Take, the, t- look, take a, a page out of this manager's book. Look how shrewd he was in planning for his future and say, you be likewise shrewd in an honest and righteous way to make sure that you are prepared for your eternity. You know, what if... You spend as much time preparing for eternity as you spent preparing for retirement. Right? So many people spend time and hours and effort and energy hey, getting ready for retirement. And again, that is a good thing. I'm not suggesting otherwise. But sometimes I think we spend more time preparing for you know, what's going to happen when I turn 65 than preparing for what's going to happen to me when I die. Right? We know that eventually, you know, you're going to have to stop working and you won't be able to continue to earn an income for yourself and you need to think about that. We also know that we are going to die one day, right? And you need to be prepared for that. I don't just mean make advanced arrangements for your funeral. I mean, be prepared to stand before your creator. Know that your sins are forgiven and your relationship with God is secure. And if you're a Christian, man, live like eternity is the real deal, right? This is just the prelude. This is just, these are just the pregame activities for the Super Bowl, for the thing that's going to happen. This is just preparation. You think about our lives, just, you know, 70, 80, 90 years if you're in good health, and then eternity forever. Like, there's no comparison, right? And we're like, well, I'm just going to live for right here, and I'm going to be concerned about this little tiny part of what's going to happen, you know, some point in the future or this next decade. When there's, we need to be thinking about what's going to happen 10 billion years from now. That's what Jesus is saying. So as we come to this investment principle, Jesus is saying be focused on the future and not just, hey, the last decade and a half or two decades of your life, but your eternity. You think about investment. Um, 
you're only going to invest in a company or a stock if you're like, yeah, I think I might actually get a return from that. If someone's like, hey, I've got a business and it's doomed to fail, can you invest in it? You'd be like, no. Right? You invest in stuff that you're like, hey, this has got a track record and you read up on it. So there's a couple of things that will lie behind an investment choice. One of them is you're concerned about the future. You're not just thinking about like today. I want to spend this money on potato chips right now. No, I need to think about then. And the other thing is going to be confidence that I've got confidence that probably over the long term the stock market is going to keep going up. The same is true with spiritual investments. Jesus is calling us to future-focused, eternity-focused planning. That's what he's saying. Plan and invest in your eternal future. And he's also calling us to faith-fueled generosity. Just as someone who is investing invests only if they're confident in the stock in which they're investing or the company in which they're investing, likewise, you will not invest in eternity if you really, unless you really believe that there is an eternity and that there are eternal rewards. So what, you know, what the gospel says to you and me is throw everything away for the cause of Jesus because it will be worth it. 10 billion years from now. Listen, you're only going to do that if you believe that, number one, the cause of Jesus is genuine, and you're only going to do that if you genuinely believe that it's worthwhile. Choosing to invest everything in eternity and put all in, putting all of your hopes into Christ, really, that's the display of your faith, whether your faith is real or not. So that's the investment principle. Yes, yeah, invest money for the short term for retirement. But Jesus' point is, use your money to invest in eternity. Use your, 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 your wealth, your income to say, how will this matter 10 million years from now? If you look at your budget, you look at your, your checkbook, you look at your credit card statement, ask yourself, how many of these things am I spending money on with an eye for eternity? How many things are just you know, here and now? And we should enjoy, yes, we should enjoy God's gifts to us, right? He's given us all things richly to enjoy. But am I doing that in light of eternity? It's a, it's a challenging question, isn't it? This is a call to faith-fueled generosity, giving towards the needs of others, giving towards the advancement of the kingdom, investing in other people's lives, investing not just money but time, Investing not just money, but abilities. Investing not just time, but even my home. Your home is probably the most valuable thing you own. How are you using your home to invest in other people spiritually, to help other people find and follow Jesus? It's one of the reasons why we're doing this summer hospitality challenge. Not just so we can get to know each other better, but so we can get sort of down into our hearts a recognition that Behind that door, right, when you walk into that home, we think, this is my castle. No, it actually belongs to God, and it's, it's a tool that he has granted to you for the good of other people. That's the investment principle. Use your personal possessions for the glory of God. Jesus sort of makes the point again in verse 9. And I say unto you, make for yourselves friends of the mammon of unrighteousness. Now, he could be saying, hey, turn the mammon of unrighteousness, that is wealth that often is leads to unrighteousness. Make it your friend. Make it work for you. Or he could be saying, use your wealth to make friends. Just like the the steward in the story did. He kind of bought a bunch of people off. Jesus, in effect, I think is saying, hey, in a sense, buy people off. Not in the bribing you, hey, I'll give you money and you be my friend. But in the sense of saying, I'm going to invest my wealth and my time and my money and my, my talents to ensure that there are people who are finding and following Jesus who will be in heaven with me forever. I think that's what he's saying. Use your time, use your treasure, use your talents 
to take people and make them eternal friends because you introduced them to Jesus Christ. So that they may receive you into everlasting habitation. So just as the stewards like, hey, I'm doing this little, this little shrewd scheme so that I get invited into people's houses, Jesus is like, do this so you get invited into heaven. One of the marks of someone who's on their way to heaven is this faith that leads to generosity. You will not see the kingdom of God unless you have genuine faith, and genuine faith looks like this. I believe God's promises, and I'll act on them. That's the investment principle. Second principle, and these last two principles we will move through much more quickly because they're just covering a few verses. This is covering, like I said, the bulk of the passage. But the second principle is what we are going to call the stewardship principle. So we've got the investment principle. Invest not just here and now, but invest in eternity. We come along now into verse 10 and we see the stewardship principle. Jesus now ends his explanation of the parable and now makes some general lessons. He that is faithful, which by the way would be the opposite of what the steward did, he was unfaithful, he was untrustworthy, in that which is least is faithful also in much. And he that is unjust in the least, okay, that's, that word was used of the unjust steward, he that is dishonest in the least is unjust, is dishonest, is unrighteous also in much. So how you act in the little things is sort of a good track record for how you will, or or proving ground for how you will behave in the big things. Verse 11, If therefore ye have have not been faithful in the unrighteous mammon, who will commit to your trust the true riches? This is interesting. The parallel statements here, Jesus is like, if you need to be be faithful in the least, to be faithful in much. And he says, here's what I mean by the least, I mean money. He says, unless you are faithful with money, why would you expect God to entrust to you genuine riches, that is spiritual riches, that is eternal rewards. The prosperity gospel flips those and is like, hey, if you're, you know, if you're faithful with spiritual things, God will give you money. Jesus is like, no, if you're faithful with money, God will give you spiritual riches, just totally the opposite of what the prosperity gospel would say. So being trustworthy with the money God has given to you determines the spiritual riches he will entrust to you for all eternity. Just as Moses and David first shepherded sheep before leading men, so Christ's people must manage money well before enjoying eternal rewards. I think it's this principle that leads Paul in 1 Timothy to say, hey, unless an individual leads their family well, don't put them in charge of the church. Right? If someone can't balance their own checkbook, don't put them in charge of the church's checkbook. If they don't lead their own kids well, why would they lead the church well? He's saying if you don't use your money well, the money that God has given you, why would you expect God to give you true spiritual riches, give you, entrust to you the gospel, entrust to you leadership, entrust to you power and influence and eternal reward? How we use money, beloved, really matters to God. This is not just a, hey, some helpful things to you know, consider. The, 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 how, we, how we use our money, how we use our credit card matters to God. You see, we like to act as if life is compartmentalized, right? Here's my spiritual life and devotions and prayer and going to church and, you know, churchy stuff. And then there's sort of like how I handle my finances and, you know, like, yeah, don't, don't be dishonest. But what I do with that, that, you know, that's kind of up to me. 
And then there's sort of my family life, like, yeah, I'd be a nice dad, but, you know, I can still be a cool church member, a good church member, but be a lousy husband. A lot of people act that way. Uh, the reality is there, there is no compartmentalization. All of our lives, the entirety, every sphere of our lives is lived under the lordship of King Jesus. It is lived under the oversight of the one who is the eternal judge. Sometimes we can pretend that I can be a good Christian while misusing my money. I can be a good Christian, but like just spend more than I, than I bring in. I can be a good Christian and just squander it all on, on, on stuff that I can't really afford and I don't really need. Jesus is suggesting part of your Christian walk and your Christian discipleship is involved, is wrapped up in how you use your money. That's important. And sometimes I think we can take the old covenant teaching of tithing and it plays right into this. Well, 10% belongs to God, so I give God 10% and then the rest of it is mine. Like I did, I, didn't, I did what God wanted, the rest is mine. No, 100% of your money is God's, right? All of it. The 10% that you give, you know, that the law required, by the way, we're not under the law, we're under grace, we're called to do more and not less, is just a tangible reminder that it, it all belongs to God, right? Lest I get it in my mind that this is mine and I'm going to control it, it's a reminder to us that it's God's. It's all God's, and therefore we should consider how every penny is spent, how every dollar is spent. How you use your money is a test of how you will handle the true riches of divine truth and eternal reward. Put it this way, a credit card statement and a monthly spending report is an excellent index of your heart's priorities. Say, I love Jesus. Okay, show me your budget. I love Jesus. Show me your, your calendar. I love Jesus, but show me how you are using your time and your, your energy on a day-in and day-out basis. That's why as Christians, we should become experts in using money well. I mean, if you don't know how your money is being spent, right, you don't know where it's going, if you don't have any sense of whether it's being responsible or irresponsible or faithful or unfaithful, I don't know how you can measure, am I, am I doing this to the glory of God? So the theological truth now that verse 12 brings home, if you have not been faithful in that which is another man's, who shall give you that which is your own? That sort of strikes me as backwards, Right? You think, okay, son, let me see how you use your bike, and then I might let you, you know, use mine. Or I see how you, you know, use the lawnmower, then I might let you drive my car. <laughs> Jesus flips that on his head. As if you've not been faithful using what is on loan, why do you expect someone to give something to you? Did you sort of catch what Jesus is saying? Okay, that which is least is money, is actually another man's. Right? What Jesus is saying in verse 12 is the money that we call ours is actually God's. It does not belong to you. It does not belong to me. It belongs to God. All our wealth is on loan from God. Now think about the illustration that Jesus used of the manager. He's supposed to manage the master's resources well. In the same way, we are meant to manage the master's resources well. You're going to someone borrow something and then like return it to you like, here it is. It's like the guy who had the job of washing, I think it was a, either a Ferrari or a Lamborghini, and decided just like, hey, I just washed it, let me just drive it around the block, and then totaled it, right? Like, that's pretty embarrassing when your job was, you know, like $10 an hour to clean somebody's car, and you just totaled like an $100,000 piece of machinery. We do that so often with God's money. Like, he's like, boom, here's an income, here's a job, here's resources, here's time, here's a life, and then we just go out and blow it on stuff that, that, that God would not have us to use it on. First Chronicles 29, 
makes this point so clearly and beautifully. Hear, hear, hear what is said over here. Here David is praying. Listen to what he says in verse 11, 1 Chronicles 29, verse 11. Thine, yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty. For all that is in the heaven and in the earth is thine. Thine is the kingdom, O Lord, and thou art exalted as head above all. Both riches and honor come from thee, and thou reignest over all. And in thine hand is power and might, and in thine hand it is to make great and to give strength unto all. Now, therefore, our God, we thank thee and praise thy glorious name. The truth we need to get down into our hearts is every penny in our bank account, in your wallet, is God's. Every second of your life is God's. Every ability you have is God's. It's from Him. Use it for His glory. Use it well. Manage it well. Just as we recoil at the horror of this manager in our story, stealing the master's property, we should likewise recoil in horror at the ways that we squander God's property when we just waste it on selfish, pointless, foolish, unnecessary things. It brings us to the final principle back in Luke 16. The final principle I'm going to call the supremacy principle. It comes to using money, the investment principle invested in eternity. There's the stewardship principle. It belongs to God. It's not mine. And finally, the supremacy principle. We get this in verse 13. No servant, no household servant is the idea, can, can serve or be a slave to two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will hold to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. By the way, the word mammon was an Aramaic term referring to wealth. It comes from the word we get amen from, from the thing that is, that which is trustworthy. Uh, when mammon is referred to, it's sort of a negative term referring to wealth. Wealth in terms of what we might trust in rather than God. He says you can't trust in wealth as your ultimate form of security and God. So this supremacy principle breaks down in a couple of different forms. That verb translated serve in verse 13 is the word that, the, the, the Greek word for, for to be enslaved to. It speaks of authority. Either God or wealth will be the supreme authority calling the shots in your life, but not both. There can only be one head honcho. If all our wealth is on loan from God, if we're just stewards and not owners, then it follows that God is supreme over everything. Now, the Pharisees in verse 14, who were covetous, says, it says, heard these things and they derided. I mean, they think this is ridiculous. Like, yeah, you can have money and God at the same time. Jesus is like, nope, you can't do that. Only one can rule ultimately. Money can make an excellent servant, but it is a terrible, terrible master. It can drive you, it can drive your life. Where If the pursuit of money, the pursuit of promotion, the pursuit of wealth, the pursuit of security, that begins to drive your decisions. It is the master and you have become the slave. So the question Jesus is making us ask in verse 13 is who is the supreme authority in your life? And by the way, that gets to the heart of the gospel. This is not just about, well, let me make a decision here. Romans chapter 6, verse 18 describes salvation in terms of either you are the slave of sin and self, or you're the slave of Jesus. One or the other. You're going to be somebody's slave. You know, well, I'm free. I do what I want to do. Okay, then you're the slave of your own sinful nature. You're the slave of sin. Now, those are the options, one or the other. 
when you get saved, there is a transfer from you're the slave of sin to becoming the slave, the one who is owned by, who serves Jesus Christ. So if money is what is dictating the priorities in your life, Romans 6.18 might suggest that you have not made the transfer from one master to another, despite your protests otherwise. That's what the gospel is all about. Who will you serve? Because Jesus died in our place, because he took our sins, we have been redeemed, we have been bought back, we have been purchased, and we belong to him. He's liberated us from the slavery of sin. He's liberated us from enslavement to materialism so that we would belong to him. Carl Stelzer told me a story one time about someone he baptized years ago when he was a pastor, I think in Ohio. This guy got saved, and he came to be baptized, and he's like, I I want my wallet to be in my pocket when I get baptized. And he's like, why? He said, well, because I want to be reminded that my money now belongs to Jesus. Right? What, What a great perspective. Like, not that you have to baptize your wallet, but what a great perspective that my money now belongs to Jesus. If I belong to him, then the things that matter also belong to him, and it is meant to serve him. If you think you can serve both money and God, you will realize that one or the other must dominate. Judas Iscariot tried to do both, and we know how that story ended. We come along and wrap up verse 13. He goes on, he says, You either hate the one and love the other, hold to one and despise the other. That's the language now of affection. So the supremacy principle says either money or Jesus will have supreme authority, either money or Jesus will have supreme affection, the one who will be the supreme affection in your life. You either cling to one, be devoted to one, or you'll look down on, despise, and the other. Remember the parable of the sower? Jesus talks about how the word, it goes among the thorns and it tries to grow, and then the thorns choke it. He says that's what greed will do. It will choke the word growing in your life. This gets to the heart of the issue. Now, maybe you're kind of zoning out and, and minds other places. Just come back with me for just a minute as we think about this. I think this is really important. If you get nothing else out of the message, I want you to get this. This, this is ultimately about worship. This is ultimately about who you love supremely. It's not ultimately about behavior and, like, how do you use your money and what systems do you use. It's not ultimately about what investments you have on the stock market. It's about... Do you love Jesus with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength? The reason I can say this is about worship is Colossians 3 says it's about worship. Colossians 3, verse 4 or 5, talks about covetousness, which is what? Idolatry. It's false worship. Covetousness, the tenth commandment, Paul links back to the first commandment. No other gods before me. If I'm covetous, it means that I am worshiping a false god. It means I'm trusting a false god. So what do we need? It's not just better financial advice. It's not just better spending habits. It's not just greater social awareness of the needs that are around us. What we need, beloved, is nothing short of a brand new heart. A heart that instead of being attached to wealth and materialism is attached to Jesus. A heart that instead of being selfish is saying, I'll be sacrificial and generous. We need a heart transplant. We need a, we need a new beginning. We need a new birth. And that's exactly what the new covenant offers to us. Ye must be born again. You must be born again. And guess what? I can't do that to myself. You can't do that for yourself. Uh, you didn't have much agency in your own birth, right? You, don't, you remember when you were born? You're like, yeah, that, that, that wasn't you. 
Being born again is a work of God. It is a miracle of the Holy Spirit where he gives brand new life and eternal life to those who repent and believe in Jesus. Have you received a new heart? One of the ways you can measure that is, okay, how how do I think about money? It's one of the little windows into your soul, one of those windows into your heart that will measure, have I been born again? Do I have those new affections? Do I love Jesus or do I love my stuff? That's the supremacy principle. And it's a, wow, what a, you know, what a convicting, challenging thought for us. So how do we use our money? What is genuine wealth? Well, according to Jesus, genuine wealth is not about just getting all you can and canning all you get and sitting on the... That's not what he's talking about. He is talking about giving. He's talking about generosity. He's talking about investing in eternity and investing in others. That's what genuine wealth is. That's the definition that he's using. The ladder that he's calling us to climb is not the ladder leaned up against the wall that says corporate success. It's leaned up against the wall that says generosity to others, investment in the kingdom of God. So how do you use your money? Here's some principles to guide you. Investment principle says use your money in a way that takes into account eternity. The stewardship principle says use your money in a way that recognizes divine ownership of everything you have. And the supremacy principle says use your money in a way that expresses and deepens love for God with all of your being. That's the lesson Jesus wants us to get from this. That's the lesson we're supposed to take away from this. So may we get the lesson Jesus is teaching and not come up with our own. May we listen to it, may we heed it, and may we do it. Father, help us. Help us to use our money for your glory. May we recognize that it's not our own, but it is yours. May we set our affection on things above, not on...